4 verses 21 to 24. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet at a time is coming and has not come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship the Spirit in and in truth. My turn to say good morning. My opportunity to say uh, <clears throat> thank you. Thank you to the elders and those who have organized this weekend and invited me to participate. I participate. You know, I'm sitting there losing my voice like the rest of you. I certainly want to thank uh, Jay. You know, Jay stood here last night and he just reamed off name after name and everybody applauded to, to thank this person and that person, which is, you know, give credit, you know, honor to those who, who, to whom honor is due. But nobody said thank you to Jay. Absolutely. He is one ministry machine, that man tell you. And Linda, of course, Jane and Linda were my hosts, and uh, as I said last night, they, they bring hospitality to a whole other level. What time did everybody leave? 2 a.m.? 2.30 a.m.? I took names. If you were there till 2 o'clock this morning but didn't show up for church this morning, I got your name. We'll be, we'll be putting them up here on the board later on. And what can I say? I was trying to think. I want to say something nice about Keith. Here it is. Keith makes you want to sing. Doesn't he? Doesn't he? He makes you want to sing. I'm sitting there and I'm saying, don't sing. You've got to talk for 40 minutes. Don't sing. You're going to wear out your voice. And then it's, oh, I got this one. Are you kidding me? He's looking right at me. I've got to sing. He's looking right at me. All right, the glory of singing in worship. <clears throat> For many years before we, uh, as Wayne said, I was in Montreal before, preached in Montreal for many years. So many years before we, the church in Montreal, bought a new building, the church in Montreal was located right next door to a Pentecostal uh, church uh, assembly. I need a picture up there, Bill. There it is. Okay. So we're on the left, if you're, how's it going? Yeah, we're on the left. And this was an old Presbyterian building. Um, and a huge thing. And we bought the back end of it, you know, because uh, we couldn't afford the whole thing. And the other side, on the right-hand side, that was a whole other building, but they were kind of fused together. Uh, it was purchased by a Pentecostal church a couple of years after we were in our building. It had remained empty for a couple of years, and then they... Uh, moved in. Well, 
on Sunday mornings, we could hear their band playing. Imagine you're in here singing, and in between the songs, you know, there's a little silence, you hear boom, 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 And the drummer. So we just sang louder to drown them out. Their uh, minister, Billy English, nice Irish guy, um, we used to visit from time to time. I mean, we knew each other. We were, you know, right next door to each other. And... Um, uh, he, he even came to the inaugural of our new building when we sold this one. We moved away. He came and, you know, good sport, nice guy. Now, there were a lot of differences between our respective churches, of course. They had no Bible classes, only one big, long worship service. They believed in miraculous gifts and speaking in tongues and prophecy in the modern age. We didn't. They used all kinds of musical instruments and performers in their public worship, and we didn't. When Billy and I got together and had a coffee and we talked about church matters, the only thing that piqued his curiosity about us was why we only sang at our worship service. He didn't want to know about my theology on anything else. He was just curious why you guys don't have a band. He said that this was the most distinct feature about our group, and it really separated us from the others. We were truly different, he said, because of this one thing. It seems a shame that so many in our brotherhood today are toying with the idea of adding instruments to worship, and in doing so, removing one of the most unique features of our identity. A lot of other reasons, of course, but that one. Billy English would say, why would you do that? Of course, as curious as Billy was, he never really sat down and gave me a chance to clearly explain why we only sing. I mean, if he could have been here this morning, he, I wouldn't have to say a word. <laughs> He'd understand why we only sing. Instruments just get in the way and mess things up. It seems to me that there are many people out there and maybe even in here, who are not quite sure why we have this practice. For this reason, and maybe with the hope that one day Billy will hear this lesson on, on YouTube somewhere, let me give you the three basic reasons why the Church of Christ doesn't use instruments in public worship. Reason number one. There is no command in the New Testament to do so. One of the most important elements of faith is uh, faith uh, is um, uh, faith in God. Rather, is worship. The very first commandment in the Old Testament is the prohibition against worshiping any other god but the Lord. So God takes worship seriously. In the Old Testament, God was very specific about how He wanted the Jews, to worship him. Think about it. The building of the tabernacle in the desert as well as the temple in Jerusalem was all done according to his detailed instructions. I mean, in the book of Exodus, there are at least five chapters, five entire chapters devoted to explaining how to put together the tabernacle in the desert. I mean, it was just a tent. Five chapters. We don't have five chapters on baptism. <laughs> but we got five chapters on how exactly to put the, the tent together in the, in the desert. 
the manner in which the Jews worshipped, offered sacrifice, the dressing of the priests, all explained to the smallest detail, even the musical instruments to be used, and who and when to play them were laid out by God to Moses and David and the prophets. For example, Moses in Numbers 10, 1 and 2, it says, The Lord spoke further to Moses, saying, Make yourself two trumpets of silver of hammered work, you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for having the camps set out. And so God, in this passage here, specifies which instruments are to be created, how, out of what material they're to be made. Let's go to Numbers 10, verse 8. He says, The priestly sons of Aaron, moreover, shall blow the trumpets, and this shall be for you a perpetual statute throughout your generations. Here he signifies who's going to play the instrument. Not anybody can play the instrument. You're not going to blow them at any time you feel like. You're not going to jam with this stuff. Who plays? Who plays them when and for what reasons? In Numbers 10, 10, he says, Also in the day of your gladness and in your appointed feast and on the first days of your months, You shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be as a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Here he explains the when and the why that they will play these musical instruments. All right, let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. Um, And David, King David, now, now we've kind of fast forward to King David's time. It says here, he then stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps, and with lyres, according to the command of David and Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet. For the command was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the musical instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offerings. I'll stop there just for a second. Uh, 25, 27. Okay, I'll stop there for a second. In the previous uh, passage in uh, 2 Chronicles, it says, uh, uh, God through the prophets, Gad and Nathan, gave instructions to David as to which instruments and how they were to be used in temple worship. You know, I hear people saying, well, you know, they used instruments in the Old Testament, but that was David who made that stuff up, you know. I mean, that really wasn't sanctioned. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. That was given by God. Which instruments, how they were to play them, when they were to play them, who was going to play them, when they were going to play them, that was all God. Man didn't make that up. There was no improvisation, you know, on their own. The Jews never added or changed around these instruments. Uh, now, I'll read the one on verse 27, um, 29, 2 Chronicles. It says, Then Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offering on the altar. When the burnt offerings began, the song to the Lord also began with the trumpets, accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. In this passage... The writers describe Hezekiah's restoration of the temple and temple worship after a long period of neglect. And note that that when it came to music, what did did Hezekiah do? He reinstated what had been commanded before by Gad and and, and Nathan and, and David. 
In other words, they didn't say, oh, yeah, instruments. Well, wait a minute. We, we got some new instruments here. We're going we're gonna to add some stuff. No, 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 no. When, when, they, when they rebuilt the temple, when they restored the worship of the temple in the time of Hezekiah, they went back and said, what did they do back in the day of David? Oh, they played these instruments. They played those instruments. And they did it at this moment. And these were the people. Well, let's do that. Let's restore what God had originally done. We're talking in the Old Testament. So, my point here is that in the Old Testament, God was specific in his instructions concerning the type of music that they used. I know this may sound heretical to some of you. The type of music and instruments that they used in worship. Probably because the Jews were easily drawn into pagan worship um, if left alone. Now, this same idea carries over into the New Testament. God, this time through the apostles, still gives us the information that we need about our worship to him. Aside from the Lord's Supper and prayers and teaching and preaching the word, caring for the church, the only instruction and command we have about music in public worship from the Lord in the New Testament is that we are to sing. Now, do you get what I'm trying to get across here? I'm not making an argument that we should use instruments. I'm saying God cared about music. He cared about what music did, how it was performed. He was very specific in the Old Testament about what they were to do musically. And my point is, in the New Testament, God cares about music and what we are to do with music. And who is to do music in worship? Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 15. What are the instructions that we get in the New Testament from God? Who cares about music? He says, what is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the mind. Note Paul here is giving instructions about proper conduct in public worship of the church. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, next passage. Uh, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Not only does Paul repeat the idea that singing is the proper and acceptable manner of musical praise to God, the word that he uses means to sing without the use of instruments. As much as you had information about what kind of instruments and who played them and when they were to be played in Old Testament worship, in New Testament worship, the, the, the specific command is to sing without any instruments. Now, in English, we use the term a cappella, which is a Latin term, Italian actually, meaning chapel style, when we want to refer to singing without instruments. If somebody says, hey, I'm going to a concert, you know, who's playing? Well, you know, Manhattan Transfer. Manhattan Transfer, that's an a cappella group, isn't it? Yeah. What, do, what does that mean? 
Well, it means that I'm going to go see a singing group that sings without any instrument. Yeah, Manhattan Transfer and others. Now, in the Greek language, the language of the New Testament, the word for singing without instruments is specific, the word sala, which is exactly the word that Paul uses here. Let's go to Colossians 3.16. It says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns, the type of music, the type of music, and spiritual songs, the tone of the music, singing, oh, the manner of the music, with thankfulness, the attitude of the music. So again, This time to a third group of churches. Paul repeats the same inspired instruction in reference to musical praise. Solo. Sing. Only sing. So what makes us think that God, who gave very specific commands to his people in the Old Testament about worship, would let his people in the New Testament do whatever they wanted when it came to praise and music? How do we get there? How do people come to that conclusion? If we ask the question, what command from God do we have as far as musical praise and worship is concerned? The answer from the New Testament is very, very clear. The command is sing only. Now, the way to sing with enthusiasm and so on and so forth. But the command about the, the instrument to use, yeah, the voice, only the voice. Okay, that's the first reason. Why why do we just sing? Well, because the Bible commands that we just sing when we are together in the public assembly. Uh, That's one reason. There's another reason, and that is there is no example of anything else in the New Testament. You know, what's interesting about the Old Testament and the use of instruments in praise is that there are many examples of their use. The Old Testament clearly describes in detail the use of instruments and choirs and parades, all kinds of stuff they did back then. There's no attempt to downplay their use. It's not in a gray area. I hear students say, well, you know, the use of instruments in the Old Testament, that's a kind of a gray area. No, it's not. Clear as day. They used instruments. Come on. They were commanded. They were used. We confirmed their use by God's command and the many examples of people obeying that command. Even when they had a restoration movement in the Old Testament, what did they restore? Well, they restored the use of instruments in the temple. (laughs) Well, this same pattern is seen in the New Testament as well. God, through the apostles, commands the practice of singing without instruments in public worship. We see examples of this throughout the New Testament. The point about instruments is made by the fact that there isn't a single example of them being used or spoken of or referred to or debated over in all of the New Testament. I mean, we debate it today, that today we debate that, but it was a non-issue back then. Nobody debated that back then in the first century. So question, why aren't there no examples You know, why don't we see any instruments? Well, because they didn't use them, that's why. (laughs) And why didn't they use them? Answer, well, the command was to sing. Let me ask you a question. You know, the Greek Orthodox Church, you know, with the Greek, you know, the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, 
Greek Orthodox Church to this day do not use instruments in public worship. Why? Why do you think? Greek Orthodox. Greek. They know the Greek. <laughs> the Greek says, sing. Yeah, no debate in the Greek Orthodox Church. They understand the language of the New Testament. They say, oh, solo, sing. Okay, all right, that's what we'll do. They don't have a debate over it. They just sing. So just as the Jews obeyed God's command to use instruments in the Old Testament, Christians in the New Testament obeyed God's command to only sing. And the fact that there are no mention of instruments in the New Testament shows that the early Christians were faithful in this matter, even if many today are not. All right, the third reason why we only sing, and that is the proof of history. <clears throat> One of the major arguments used by folks who use instruments in worship is that the early church didn't use instruments because they worshipped underground and they were in hiding because of the Roman persecution. I've heard that over and over again. They had to be quiet. And so they wanted to use instruments, you know, but they had to be quiet because they would give their position away if they used, you know, instruments in the catacombs and whatever. Well, there's a couple, of, a couple of problems with that argument. First of all, Christian worship is largely based on the Jewish synagogue worship, which did not use instruments. Secondly, the persecution of Christians by Rome began some 30 years after the church was established. But the church did not use instruments from the very beginning. Why would that be? And then thirdly, long after the Roman persecution and even Rome itself fell, the Christian church did not use instruments in worship. Historians estimate that for at least the first thousand years of church history, the worship was without instruments. A thousand years. Church historians, leaders, theologians, as far back as Justin Martyr, who was a leader in the church around 150 A.D., and defended Christianity in the face of Roman persecution, which led to his execution, Justin Martyr said, and I quote, The use of singing with instruments, uh, instrumental music was not received in the Christian churches as it was among the Jews. That's his quote. Even Augustine, the, the monk, the Catholic monk, 3rd, 4th century, he saw the use of instruments in worship as fleshly. And it's interesting to note that Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas wrote in 1260 A.D., that's far down the line, he wrote, The church does not use musical instruments when praising God, for musical instruments usually move the soul more to pleasure than create inner moral goodness. Yeah. Even early Protestant reformers were against the use of instruments in public worship. In 1571, <clears throat> the French Protestant church, formed under the influence of John Calvin, actually Jean Calvin, he spoke French, had 2,100 congregations, some of which numbered over 10,000 members in Europe. And all of these congregations were a cappella churches. All of them, a cappella churches, 15th century. Of course, this isn't biblical proof. It's historical. I mention it to underscore the idea that the use of instruments and drama and orchestras and choirs and bands and praise teams 
are all relatively recent innovations that depart from what was practiced by the church for centuries. We use a cappella music because we believe the Bible instructs us to do so by command and example, but we also have the bulk of church history to confirm that this is the correct way to worship. I can outshout you. I got four kids and 12 grandchildren. They're sitting in the audience every Sunday. Trust me. <laughs> and isn't this what we're about as a New Testament church? We want to be the church that God describes in the New Testament, don't we? Of course, not just in the way we worship, but in the way that we preach the gospel, in the way that we conduct our lives, in the way we love one another, the way that we prepare ourselves for the return of Christ. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus returned just this morning in the middle of that song? It would be great. It would be a great way to go out. Worship is only one element, but it's an important one if we are to truly restore the practice of biblical Christianity in our generation. And, and I'm so, uh, what's proud, I guess, is the word, a good sort of pride. I'm so proud about what Keith is doing and his organization, underscoring and highlighting the importance of this element of our worship and our practice. So, so very important. Okay, one other thing about music I'd like to share, and that is how just singing is a glorious act of worship. In other words, it's not just singing. You know, we place a lot of importance on how we sing as opposed to the fact that we only sing in worship. Of course, we want to do our best and we offer to God songs that sound sweet and pleasant. But the fact that we only sing without instruments according to his command, has greater significance in the spiritual context of worship than the quality or the complexity of the music. For all of you who don't have much of a voice, that should be a comforting thought. John Price, in his book, Old Light on New Worship, lists several ways which Christ has lifted up the practice of singing in worship as a glorious thing. Jesus himself has made singing in worship glorious. First of all, by his own example. Jesus anoints singing as a glorious manner to praise God because he himself sang praises with his apostles in the upper room on the night before he died. Do you think about that for a moment? In Matthew 26.30, Matthew says that they sang a hymn, as was the custom of the Jews at Passover. The traditional one was the Hallel, which comprised of Psalms 113 to 118. You know, some or all of those psalms together are called the Hallel, meaning praise, the Hebrew word praise. And so before his suffering and death, Jesus sang songs of praise and trust and thanksgiving. Imagine, Jesus, in worship, sang songs that we sing. It is only fitting that when we worship, we follow the example of our Lord, who exalts this practice by doing it himself. 
He didn't pull out a guitar and strum a few chords before he went to the cross. No. He lifted up his voice in song of praise and thanksgiving, just like you and I have done this morning, to the very same God. Jesus glorifies this form of praise also by making it a teaching ministry. I return to Colossians 3.16, where Paul says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When our singing is based on the word of God with songs taken directly from the psalms or derived from the scripture, we are literally teaching and encouraging one another through songs. When we sing, stand up, stand up for Jesus, Are we not encouraging one another to remain faithful and strong for Christ? When we sing, up from the grave he arose, are we not proclaiming the gospel to one another and any unbeliever who might be present? When we sing, everybody praise the name of Jesus, everybody worship the King, lifting our praise to overflowing and sing our Redeemer as we sing. Lyrics, by the way, written by Keith Lancaster for the song, Everybody Praise. When we sing those words, aren't we confessing that we believe that Jesus is both King and Redeemer? Aside from offering our love and praise to God, congregational singing serves as a teaching ministry for the building up of the saints. No instrument, no matter how beautifully played or numerous, can bless the church like the human voice Declaring the truths of God in his spiritual songs. Amen, church? Mm. You can have Yo-Yo Ma up here, you know, playing his beautiful instrument. You know, the best guy in the whole world. Doesn't even come close to what we're doing as far as praising God and edifying one another. Aside from offering our love and praise to God, congregational singing serves as a teaching ministry for the building up of the church, as I said before, some put way too much emphasis on the musicality of our singing, judging it by its tone and pleasure to the ear, and using it, unfortunately, as an excuse not to sing, not to participate. But God lifts up singing as an exalted method of praise because it is the direct link to a person's heart and faith. With the heart we believe. And with the mouth we proclaim in song that Jesus Christ is Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is primal Christianity. It bypasses the brain. And the brain is what keeps us in our seat. The brain is what keeps our mouths shut. The brain is where our pride is hidden. But singing praises to the Lord bypasses all that stuff. And then finally, Jesus glorifies singing by making it a foretaste of heaven. John, in his vision of heaven in the book of Revelation, says, And they sang. And they sang. It doesn't say, and they played. It says, and they sang. The song of Moses, 
the bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Our singing here on earth in the church is the beginning, and it is a hint of the experience of heaven. We only know vaguely what heaven will be like in in negative terms. You ever notice that when people talk about heaven, they talk about it in negative terms? You know, there'll be no death there, no sin there, no suffering there. Because it's hard to imagine heaven since we have all these things here on earth and we've always had them here on earth. So to experience the complete absence of these things is difficult. I mean, you know, there's always been sin in my life. It's hard to imagine a time when there'll be no sin in my life. I've always seen death. I watched my own father die in front of me. I've held people in my arms who die. And as a minister, I can't count the number of times I've seen people living one moment and then just expire right in front of me. I've seen it all my life. Death, death, death. It's all around. And in heaven, there is no death. It's hard for me to imagine that because all I've ever seen is death. But singing and singing joyfully and singing with faith, this is something we know. It's something we actually do. God has given us this experience, among others, to help us actually feel in a very real sense what heaven will be like. As a matter of fact, John Price says in his book that singing is the only ordinance of the church that shall continue in heaven. When we see him face to face, preaching, prayer, communion, baptism, all of these things will be done away with. There's no preaching in heaven. (laughs) Everybody believes. There's no remembering the cross in heaven. We We don't do that no more. There's no confessing sin in heaven. There's none of that. In heaven, none of these things will be necessary except to celebrate our everlasting relationship in a perfect spiritual union with God. And you know what? God has chosen singing as the way to do this both on earth here and in heaven. The only two things that we do here that we're going to transfer up into heaven is loving each other and singing with one another. It's the only two things we're bringing with us. Everything else we're leaving down here. Hallelujah. Must have been too long next to that Pentecostal church. I'm saying hallelujah. (laughs) So therefore, so therefore, When we gather to worship in song, remember, number one, that what we do is ordained by God and pleasing to Him first because of our obedience, not our ability. God is honored through our obedience, and He is recognized and adored through our songs of praise.
Remember, number two, that a cappella singing is a glorious thing because Jesus has raised it above any other form of worship by his own example and the teaching of the apostles. I sing in worship because my Lord sang in worship. And finally, that when we are two or more who gather in his name to worship God, Jesus is not only with us, but he also sings with us as well. In Romans 15, 9, Paul quotes several verses from Psalms showing that Christ himself was speaking through David concerning the eventual salvation of the Gentiles. And in Psalm 18, 49, Christ declares through David his prophet, I will praise you among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. The I here refers to the Son of God in its spiritual context. When we sing... He sings. You thought of that? When we sing, He sings. So when you stand and sing today, know that you sing to God and with the Son of God when you lift up your voices in song. And so, as we sing a kind of an invitation song this morning, let's sing it with our hearts, calling out to those who need forgiveness or spiritual help to come forward if they need to, and also call out to God to bless and encourage us to remain faithful until that day when the only thing left for us to do is to love one another and to praise God in song. Let's stand, please, and sing.